Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another Suncast episode. Thank you so much for lending your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. And I'm glad that you're investing that time to be here with us, I promise that we don't take it for granted and that this is a great investment for you. And if you're new here, well, I presume that you're going to get a ton of value from this episode. Thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. If you do, in fact, get a ton of value, I pray that you will subscribe to this show and tune in for even more episodes. Today's entrepreneur began his solar career back in the aughts, as I did back in 2007, as a lowly intern with the fabled REC Solar. He's worked as an engineer for EPC firms and module suppliers and project developers alike, and has had a lot of opportunity to recognize where the gaps are in the industry, in particular where data is concerned. Catlin Mathias and two other intrepid co-founders started out about a decade ago with the goal of generating reliable soiling loss data. There are many of you who understand the value of soiling loss data and how it can improve your ability to convince bankers and help asset owners. Well, FrackSun exists to ensure that you have the data that you need to prove out that financial model. While maintaining full-time careers, the FrackSun team have developed their prototypes and been awarded grant upon grant upon other awards. And today, Catlin and his team stay very busy deploying these solutions. And today, Catlin and his team have lifted this entrepreneurial venture into a viable business. We're going to talk about how and why it mattered to them and it can matter to you. We are all here to learn from clean energy leaders like Catlin, who have taken upon themselves, like many of you have, to go where others have not gone. But the good news is that here on Suncast, we get to tap into that collective insight. In fact, if you like what you hear, I encourage you to subscribe to the show because we've got more than 400 additional founder stories and start up advice that comes at you twice a week. Short form content on Tuesdays, our tactical Tuesdays, and of course, these long form deep dive executive profiles of the founders in the industry, just like Callan, who are making a difference every single day. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as you just heard, we are here today to talk with an entrepreneur that I've been watching for the better part of the last decade, lift his business out of obscurity and out of his mind and out of the, the, the business plans into a viable, productive business, one that has customers you and I recognize and investors that believe in his path forward. We're sitting in lovely Long Beach, California, in person, one of the few in-person interviews I've been able to have 
this year in our makeshift Suncast studio. And I want to welcome Catlin Mathias to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. It's great to be here. It is my deep and genuine pleasure to be the first podcast that you have graced. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We'll see if I can stand the sound of my own voice. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to do just fine. Trust me. Well, listen, there are a lot of different stories that I know we're going to be able to tell. Uh, One of the ones that I remember most vividly is when we first met and we have our mutual buddy, Jimmy Wood, to thank for it. As I recall, you and Jim were standing out in front of the Warfield in San Francisco at the Next Tracker party, I think, I don't know, one of those shows, probably Intersolar, like 2016 or something, who knows? And 17. 17. 17, uh, Battle of the Bands. And that's right, it was Battle of the Bands. And you remember that because that night? Because that night uh, <laughs> we found out, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but we found out through official channels mm-hmm. uh, that we had been awarded a million dollar grant from the Department of Energy. Oh my goodness. What's the first thing that goes through your mind when you find out that you've been awarded a million dollars from the DOE? <laughs> that you can finally quit your job, uh, <laughs> work full time on oh, what you really care about doing. That's amazing. What were you doing at the time? Uh, <laughs> not to throw uh, anyone else under the bus, but I was consulting at that point mm. for a couple, for a module manufacturer and another group doing some Product, project development. Got it. I'll say project development. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Callan, have you always known that you had the entrepreneur bug? Uh, I did. I, I really was kind of a hustler growing up, I guess. I always mm. had kind of some kind of, some kind of side business going on throughout high school. What's an example? Uh, <laughs> we'll see if we cut this or not, but I was selling, uh, <laughs> mod chips for the PlayStation back in the day when I was about 15, which was a device that enabled you to play video games on the PlayStation with burned CDs. So no it way, yeah. went yeah. around the security system that, or the, it How bypassed you- the security that would prevent your PlayStation from playing yeah. A, a burnt CD. How did you know that mod chips were a thing and, and that you could be the progenitor of them? Uh, I mean, it was like kind of a new thing at the time and someone had developed a version that could just plug straight in the back. And I, I knew a guy through, believe it or not, the internet back in <laughs> 1999. Wow. And I was just getting a bunch of supply from him all the time and selling them just... So you were buying wholesale mod chips. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like the geek version of going and buying a box of lollipops at Costco and selling them individually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's actually way cooler in, yeah. in, in modern terms. Although it probably wasn't, uh, your parents, did they think it was cool? Uh, I don't know if they even knew about it. To be honest. <laughs> That's awesome. Those are the best kind of side hustles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my 10 year old's listening to this thinking, oh yeah, right, dad. That's the best kind of side okay, hustle. Yeah. So oh, for your 10 year old, <laughs> if your parents think you're making a lot of money, then they're not going to kick down very much. You know, they're going to start asking you for money. Yeah, there you go. Well, growing up, did, was there much of an entrepreneurial spirit in your family? Where did you, where do you feel like that came from? Well, I'd say more kind of my engineering spirit came a lot from my grandfather and spending time with him. Uh, he was a Cal Poly professor, a PhD engineer. Yeah. Uh, spent some time as a dean at uh, Cal Poly no way. in ag engineering. And growing up, you know, he was, <laughs> it took me the better part of 20 years to realize, but he was kind of 
grooming me a little bit. Mm. He would give me little electronics projects. Uh, at one point, he had me help him build a truss bridge, actually, for a large train or a large creek crossing mm. on a Cal Poly property up north of Santa Cruz. And, you know, he always just kind of had me working on things that he thought I would think were interesting yeah. or I would learn something from, you yeah. know. And uh, and when I was getting ready to go to school for college and I told him, you know, I wanted to get a business degree. I was kind of a hustler and I always wanted to be in business. He asked if I was going to get an MBA. And I'm like, of course, you know, everyone's got a bachelor's degree, right? <clears throat> right. You got to get a master's, which I never did. Mm. Um, but when he, and he's like, well, are you going to get an MBA and you're going to get your undergrad in business? Are you going, he's like, that's like getting two train tickets to the same place. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, his, his suggestion, which I then just bought hook, line and sinker was, he's like, why don't you get an engineering degree, you mm -hmm. know, and then you have a technical background yeah. and then you get your master's in business and then you can pursue business as it were. Yeah. It was sound advice. advice it was great I've, advice. Yeah. Advice I've given. <laughs> I've given well. that same advice to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So great advice. I ended up in engineering and I just really meshed with it and- you know, I never ended up going back for business and I just started a business instead. Amazing. I started in engineering and about two years in switched to this, to the business school. And to this day, my best friend from college still, no matter when I see him, he always will say, do you remember that college of engineering sticker that he's, I bet that's still on your car, isn't it? <laughs> Cause I never would take it off. Right. And he's like, why do you keep that college of engineering sticker on? You're not an engineering student anymore. But once an engineering student, always an engineering student, if you don't, even if you don't finish. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> well, I've often uh, referred to my first business, 2006, and then the second, third, fourth, and fifth failures I've been a part of as MBAs two, three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. um, so I would argue that you're quite fortunate that, that your, your first MBA, which is in the real world, is going quite well, as I understand it. I wonder, was there anything maybe earlier in life before your grandfather rewired the, the thinking in your brain? Was there anything that you always thought that you were going to do, but you never end up doing? Um, not really. I mean, for, for, for a young kid, I was fairly money hungry when it, <laughs> when it came to career choice. Everyone else was like, fireman, policeman, astronaut. Yeah. And I was like, I think endodontists make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was like 11. That's funny. So luckily I'm not doing root canals. Yeah. I hope I still have that right. I mean. I'm, yeah. Well, that means it's, you have, there's a lot to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows with the way Fraxon's going, maybe you'll have the time on your hands to become an endodontist someday. <laughs> Just for fun. So tell me about the first time that you were exposed to the idea that solar power was a thing and how you decided or knew that that was where you're going to focus your career. Yeah. So I had, I had a friend, shout out to Jimmy Gann, if that makes it on, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he was working at REC when we were both in Cal Poly together, uh, both doing engineering and he's like, yeah, REC is doing, you know, they have interns, but you know, the pay is, is decent. So it was, you know, it was basically a job mm. and something that I needed at the time badly. So, yeah, I just, I went to work for REC and I just really loved the idea 
that, you know, it was fairly novel still in 2007 that you can just put some panels on your roof and never pay electricity again. Hmm. Of course, you know, the cost of a, of a residential system at that time, I, I struggle to remember it, but I think it was, you know, close to five to $7 a watt. But yeah, that was kind of my, my first intro into the world of solar, just designing and installing residential solar arrays. And at that time, REC's commercial division was very new. They had just won their first uh, Costco, I think was about 2007. Yeah. I just had a trip down memory lane that involved a lot of stories about REC for obvious reasons with Carrie Hayes. <laughs> yes. yeah, very, very recently. Little quick little kaboom. Yeah. You know, for <laughs> Carrie Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That dude is a, he's a legend and uh, is doing some amazing things at REC group now. So as I said in the beginning, when I introduced you, you have kind of only known solar. You started out as an intern at REC. Your buddy got you the internship. Is that kind of how that worked? Yeah. Yeah. And you started out in the engineering program because of course you're an engineer at Cal Poly and that was the feeder program essentially for REC. Yes. Yeah. They were big fans of mechanical engineers and that, you know, it's, it's a very hands-on engineering mm -hmm. where you can essentially learn. You're learning how to learn, you know. Mm. And as a mechanical engineer. Right. Right. So I'm fascinated with the idea that Fraxon is because throughout our entire career, all of us, especially those of us that started in the aughts, had to learn every piece of how the solar project comes together, how it's modeled, et cetera. And we've used all the rudimentary tools and we've seen such wonderful inventions like the sun eye. And now we don't even need to use things like that, right? To determine how a system is going to perform. But the piece that always seemed to me to be sort of locked in a book somewhere was the assumptions around soiling, right? Yeah, that, a lot of assumptions actually yeah, <laughs> to the, this day. Yeah. You know, one of the things I want to learn is how an entrepreneur decides what problem they're going to try to solve. So talk to me about the journey as an engineer of watching people make assumptions and how you decided there was a business opportunity in correcting that data. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story in that uh, it was oh, the things of prophecy. But first, shout out to anyone who still has a profile picture that's from a sun eye. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the coolest. Uh, but uh, Great so, American <laughs> Heroes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I had been dealing, I had been doing a lot of commercial pre-sale engineering work at the time. And we were doing a lot of work in PVSYST. And, you know, PVSYST is this, for most people that use it, really, if you're still using it or if you used to use it, well, I mean, it's just a black, black box. Yeah. And, you know, PVSYST for the, for the layperson is a modeling software developed at a university in France that was hailed for ever and a day as the standard for yield modeling on PV systems, traditionally for utility and increasingly for commercial industrial, almost never for residential, unless it was like for a bankability study. Right, right. And it was, it was one of the world's first component-based modeling programs. Mm. What does that mean? So you would go in there and you would say, okay, I want to, I'm going to use this solar, this, this particular model and make of solar module. Right. And this inverter and those manufacturers would supply files that would run in this program to give you like the operating conditions. Yeah, then these files essentially are 
assumptions about the kind, the quality of the production from each individual input. Exactly. Product. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all along the chain, there's assumptions, 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 assumptions. I mean, for me, when we started focusing on it, you know, everybody was using, I believe it was data that was stolen from Sun Edison. Hmm. <laughs> or leaked, uh, you know, <laughs> if anyone's out there who actually leaked it, uh, you know, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you. But we had this table and it had, you know, monthly soiling loss values yeah. that we would use for our, our production estimates. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, California, Arizona, a couple other places, right. like just the four or five yeah, big it was like markets. quadrants of the U.S. really. Exactly. And, and that data was obviously bad. Because it had two columns, one for Northern and one for Southern California, and it was the same data. Right. So it's like, well, something's going on here because, because those two places aren't the same. Mm. You know, we have wet, you know, redding yeah. versus dry Hemet. Yeah. And all of a sudden, no, you use the same assumptions. For anyone not in California, those two names are cities, <laughs> Redding and Hemet. <laughs> we aren't okay, talking yeah. about types of soil. So basically red, a cloud forest soil. versus a <laughs> <Dry> desert. <hemet. laughs> California has many climates. Yeah. Um, So we were all using this data and it was just not good. And I had approached one of my VP of engineering, I believe at the time, um, shout out to John Hostetter and essentially said, you know, we, you know, why don't we put some resources into figuring out what these values are for us and maybe we can build in better assumptions for our models and, you know, being, a team with a fixed amount of resources yeah. at the time. Uh, it was John's response was to, he's like, you know, we don't, we don't really have budget for that, but it's a great idea. Why don't you go get a grant from NREL and maybe just do it yourself. Yeah. And uh, for a long time, we had a pitch deck that had that quote in there, but um, <laughs> that's awesome. So cool. around, <laughs> around that time, you know, me and, uh, my two now f- co-founders, um, Brian, we, and Scott. Brian and Scott, we had been kicking around the idea of just starting a company. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we hadn't even landed on anything by then. This but was we, still, and you said the three of you were working at REC. No, actually, um, I'm the only kind of solar background member of the founding team. Okay. Brian's from um, professional audio electronics background. Right. Scott is like software engineering management, MBA kind of track. So we had been kicking around a lot of different ideas at that time. You know, oh, the only kind of... Is your buddies from high school then? Well, we had known each other. I've known, I mean, I've known Brian since we were about eight years old. And I've known Scott since we were about 12 years old. Wow. But we all went to Cal Poly. We all have complementary degrees. Yeah. With mechanical, electrical, engineering management, MBA. Yeah. Kind of all in there. And so it was a logical, you know, it was a logical founding team at that time. Well, think of the founding team. Was there a moment where you or Brian or Scott did an assessment of complementary skills? Not just like your degrees seem to match, but like Catlin's really good at this. Brian's really good at this. Scott's really good at that. <sighs> not, not, not to any uh, rigorous degree. I don't okay. think it was kind of like, Hey, this all makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, and we all know, love and trust each other. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it just worked. But, um, you know, we had been kicking around several ideas and, you know, this had kind of come up and it's like, it seemed like a, a, I, I struggle to call it easy, but I think at the time we probably said, this is an easy problem to solve. 
let's, let's go for this. Mm-hmm. We can develop this. And I'm sure in our minds, we're like, in four years, we'll be on to the next one. Right. But, yeah. Um, like something relatively easy to solve and could even do it as a side hustle. Right. Yeah. Right. And the idea was to simply measure the delta of soiling or radiance and report that value back to clients. Right. And, you know, the ultimate goal was really, you know, let's build a device that can measure this really well because it didn't really exist at that time. Since then, a few things have come online, but uh, there was nothing out there. Really, there were people doing it scientifically where they would go out and have a, you know, a local resource, go out and clean an entire string of modules and then compare the values on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. But in terms of a, a turnkey device, you know, it didn't exist. So, you know, at that time from, from my bedroom, essentially, we started developing prototypes and figuring out, you know, what's, what's the best way to do it. Yeah. You know, there was, there's a lot of different ways that you can measure how dirty a glass surface is, but, um, all that testing and prototyping over the years, which we all did for the better part of four years while we were all fully employed elsewhere, kind of landed us on PV reference cells you know, comparing apples to apples is the best way to do it. Yeah. And did you get that NREL grant that John said you should get? No, unfortunately. <laughs> our, grants came so, from, our grants came from the Department of Energy. <laughs> it sounded so easy when he told you to do it. Yeah. I mean, it turns out NREL, I think, turns out I think NREL is mostly a grant recipient. Oh. Uh, they partner on a lot of grants. Yeah. But, gotcha. Yeah. So- through that process, you know, we had developed prototypes. We had actually applied for DOE funding two times unsuccessfully uh-huh. over the years. And then finally, 2016, we ended up getting into the SBIR program yeah. with a phase one grant and then a follow on grant in phase two. That's yeah. I mean, that's great money. I've got a, I've got a good friend who's been developing uh, PEMS for hydrogen fuel cells for the last 15 years. And they've probably brought in. 15 million in SBIR oh, man. money. It's amazing. Uh, and they keep coming out with great products. They're like the number one provider for PIMS, uh, for Chevy and other, or yeah, like big GM and big mm-hmm. automakers. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a wonderful program. Yeah. yeah. At what point did you realize you had something that was worth protecting? You know, like, was there a thing that you're slaving away on this algorithm or you figured out like a novel way to put something together? You know, that I feel like if it's going to turn into a, product rather than a service, you have to be able to, to, to come out with something that's worth protecting. When was that moment? Yeah, actually it was one of the first things we did in the very, very early days. Cause in order to t- determine whether or not it was worth pursuing, the first thing we realized we needed to do was kind of a patent search mm-hmm. and to see, is anyone else really working on this in earnest enough to the extent that they have filed a patent, which came back, you know, pretty rosy in terms of what was out there. And so we kind of turned around and began filing a patent, you know, immediately thereafter. And so we actually filed a patent on the hardware technology. I want to say it was probably 2011. That's cool. And that, and that's the underlying technology that now sort of protects the work that you're doing today. Exactly. That's cool. You had mentioned that there really wasn't anybody doing this kind of measurement you know, the industry has evolved a lot in the last 10 years since you started. How has the competitive landscape evolved? Like I mentioned, our patent was kind of based on a PV cell, reference cell technology model. 
we're still one of the only automatically cleaned reference PV cell based soiling monitoring stations mm. on the market. Yeah. Other, you know, optical solutions have been developed as in my humble opinion, workarounds for what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still the only soiling station out there that, you know, reports data through a, a kind of an IoT portal model mm-hmm. where, you know, because the nature of, of soiling loss is that most people realize they have a problem with soiling loss when it's too late. You don't have a big budget to kind of run Modbus cabling and set mm-hmm. it all up within a, within a media station and all that. So we've really designed our product for retrofit right? and we make it very easy to roll out. It takes my record is 15 minutes to install one. Yeah. And that's rolling up to the site, getting it attached. It's automatically commissioning. So it just turns itself on. Are but, all of your sites utility scale solar sites? No. Um, we have sites down to two or 300 kilowatts. Yeah. Commercial rooftops all the way up to almost a two or 300 megawatts. Wow. You know, big utility scale. So, yeah. Had my friend Ann from Groundworks on a couple of years ago talking about how the bulk of the work that they did and the success that they found was actually finding developers who would bring them in early because those media, those medios, be meteorological stations that they deploy are there for six months before, year before, 18 months before a project ever happens. It sounds like you just said retrofit. So it leads me to believe that you don't have like that business structural problem where you need to be so far ahead of a project, right? Because you're, because you're measuring the kind of real-time performance. Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of what we do is helping people measure soiling loss on operating assets and calculate, you know, the financially optimal time to get out there and, and mitigate those losses. But that being said, we do have a lot of greenfield development happening now where, you know, a year ahead of anything going into the ground, we're out there setting up setting up units to measure, to help with financing and all that pre-planning and all that stuff. So we are doing a lot of that now as well. And because all that data is kind of now flowing into our portal in mass, we just started selling just data packages to developers. um, I was going to ask that because you said something, financially optimal time to mitigate those losses, right? So for for the lay person who maybe doesn't understand how O&M works, they maybe have never even seen a utility scale plant. Before we talk about the data that I want to dig into, you know, I had uh, Mitchell Samulian on and uh, I've had Austin Tabor on. I've had other folks from O&M. And this seems like a product that O&M folks ought to love. What you and I both know is most of the times the O&M folks don't give a crap because <laughs> they weren't contracted to help mitigate losses. They yeah. have a con- right. I, I mean- won't throw them under the bus that hard. <laughs> hey, think about their budgets. They're, very, yeah. they're well, the so, most constrained group in the industry. So the people who really care, though, are the asset owners. Yes. Right. Yes. The um, most vested interest. Yeah. Can you tell me about what it means to mitigate those losses? How have we done it for the last 20 years? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a fancy way of saying, like, you have to go out there and scrub the panels in one way, shape or form. Mm. There are, uh, but, but there's uh, always been this question: Do you? Do you actually? Yeah, and and if you think about the answer to that question, it's always been fairly anecdotal and or opinion based. Yeah, because a large data set like this is really yet to exist, and it's still kind of being developed. So the answer of do you clean is is such a it's a site by site answer mm. because it is so, it's steeped in you know the economics of that particular site. 
compared with, you know, so like how, how much soiling are you accumulating Mm -hmm. and how much does it cost you to remove that soiling loss? So I think of it as three knobs. If you have a really high PPA rate, your soiling is really low and it's very cheap for you to clean. You're probably still going to clean once or twice a year Mm. because it's financially optimal. Yeah. And once you have a really nice calculator to run through and see how those, you know, those dollars play out over the course of a year, it's, yeah, it becomes pretty clear. And so you tapped into something that I've been wondering for a long time. And I think if I'm not mistaken, we'll probably talk a little bit about around when your, your recent series A, that there is an underlying business model to all of this data collection, right? It is that you can actually create something that's akin to a, we'll call it big data play that forever, nobody really had the, the time or interest or motivation to create. And it took kind of three crazy entrepreneurs in California that had kind of gotten fed up with seeing BS financial models to go and get, thank you, DOE, some grant money to create what is now, I believe, going to be a data set that developers will rely on for decades to come. How does this become a sort of macro enabler for the solar industry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the ultimate goal is to really have so much kind of saturation in the geologically in the U.S. and abroad where, you know, you might not even need to install a soiling station. If there is something close enough to the site you're either developing or operating, you know, you can lean on lean on your neighbor and and use data that's local enough for your for your plant. Yeah. And, and you'll be, and the models will then be able to share and especially through ML, be able to basically triangulate the accuracy of whether or not of the age old question to wash or not to wash. And then also, also do I roll a truck for this? All right. At what point do I roll a truck for this? How does it fit into my maintenance plan? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause exactly. that involves real human dollars. Hey, you know what? I'd like to take a quick minute here, maybe a little self-promotion but also on behalf of my friend Sheldon Kimber and the folks over at Intersect as we partnered back in December on a podcast series all about green hydrogen. And as you and I both know, green hydrogen, well, hydrogen generally is all the rage, especially even more so now that the news has turned towards the energy and security many in the world are facing. So I'd encourage you, go listen to the Intersect CEO, Sheldon Kimber, and other experts around the world talk about how green hydrogen can be part of the solution to our climate challenges in our hydrogen series, which is available wherever you listen to Suncast. Intersect is using the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy to develop and grow the industries of tomorrow, including green hydrogen. Here are green hydrogen series at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry, Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three 
Key points alone have convinced most of the major US developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. One question bugs me about the entrepreneur journey that very few people talk about. How do you pay the bills in those early years when you are got you've got these you've got these these wild dreams you've got three three co-founders you're all hoping that someday this will pay for itself. How did you make it to 2016, 2017 that million dollar check <laughs> where you could right like 2011 to 2017 is a long time. Yes. Yes, wow. I believe you said 11, which I'm super here for. <laughs> it felt like it feels like 11 years ago. <laughs> That's good. It's getting late in the afternoon. Um, yeah, so I mean, for us, we we all kept our day jobs all the way up until DOE funding. Mm. You know, we were working for you know the better part of six years essentially a job and a half on average. Mm -hmm. Some weeks would be, you know, 70 hours when we were fired up on an idea or building something. And then, you know, the relolls over the holidays and then you get right back into it. I would say on average one and a half to, to one and two thirds of a job where we were just working after hours for the longest time. Yeah. So paying the bills. You get an early sunshot grant too, right? Like 150 grand or something. Yeah. But that was uh, only... Nine months before our major grant. Okay. So phase one of of DOE SBIR is a nine-month program generally, and phase two is two years. Yeah. Okay. So how did you think about getting productivity out of that first 150K tranche, given that it's not going to pay for your salaries? You still got got to actually deploy equipment. Right. Um, And along that line, what was the specific plan for you to get industry buy-in now that you've got money to start deploying this stuff? Who's going to actually raise their hand and say yes? Yeah. I don't know uh, how family friendly we need to be on this podcast, but I had a running joke where with that grant money, we would be like the, like the 1980s drug dealers of myth where it's like, Hey, the first one's free, you know, (laughs) and then you're hooked. So with that initial grant funding, we reached out to a ton of industry players and we said, look, we have grant funding. We want to develop this product. We want to deploy it for free on your operating assets. And, you know, there's some trepidation where people don't want to necessarily put some untested piece of equipment out on their $10 million, $100 million array. Yeah. But uh, we ended up getting a ton of buy-in and deploying uh, a lot of units with you know, major asset owners across the country. I think at the end of phase one, the assets that we were, I think the companies we were deployed with owned a total of something like seven or eight gigawatts mm-hmm. in the US. At which, the end of phase one. The end of phase yeah. one, 2016, if you remember that yeah. time, there was like 45 something gigawatts yeah. deployed total. That's amazing. So we were like, we're, up, we're on 15% of yeah. it, or at well, least with the people who own it. I'm really curious to hear your specific plan, if you would share it or how much you can share about getting the kinds of clients like NRG and S power that made up that seven gigawatts. Uh, These are real power players, pardon the pun, who 
set the foundational stones that many of us are building businesses on today. And there are dozens of companies like yours that would have loved to have NRG and, or not like yours specifically, but like in our industry, that would have loved to have NRG and S Power as demonstration clients. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, as you well know, in this industry, it's everybody is, is very tight knit. Uh, there's a diaspora of whatever company you worked for first mm. and who ended up where in the yeah. future and who, you know, you have direct access to and you can have a conversation with and see what's important to them, you know? So it puts a very human face on a large organization like NRG yeah. where it's like, Hey, I, Oh, I know someone there. I can just reach out and see yeah. if this is something they're interested in. So we were able to get, you know, a lot of those, those big players through that, you know, just through uh, the nature of the, the, Knit, knittedness yeah. of this community. Well, if you're keeping track, and certainly those of you who've been in the industry long enough, you are nodding your head right now because you know exactly what he's saying. But 10 years, Catlin and his team built relationships, in particular Catlin, because you came from the solar industry, right? And the sure, REC yeah. diaspora, to put a name on it, is well-established and also well-healed in the in the formal sense. Like, Many people who went through REC's doors, as I talked about with Kerry on on his interview, are now running a lot of these big organizations, right? And NRG and S Power, frankly, gobbled up all of the companies our friends were working for, right? <laughs> Definitely. But, but I want to put a pin in the fact that it's really, really important. Many of you who maybe find yourself on the scientific side, you feel a little bit nerdy. You're not a salesman. You're not a biz dev person. You maybe have been stuck behind a CAD drawing forever as an engineer. Don't write off the value of people that you've been getting to know. That's why it's important to go to these trade shows. That's why it's important to get into places like LinkedIn or the wrenches, you know, forums and figure out who your peers are because we all do that. We grow up together in this industry. And if you're trying to figure out how to find a place in this industry, Understanding those relationships is a good place to start, right? Because it really is, as you said earlier about how you found your founders, we do business with people we know, like, and trust, right? As we start businesses with people we know, like, and trust. The early success that you guys saw, you know, in the rearview mirror kind of looks like, wow, these guys got, uh, they got lucky getting in our GNS power, but it had nothing to do with luck. It was 10 years of building relationships, understanding who the right players are, where the assets are deployed, and knocking on doors. And I'm sure you got a bunch of no's too, or a bunch of not responds, but uh, it's important to get those early wins and you, you can build the success of a, of a business or, or, or trace the failure to the success or failure of getting those early validation points. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like, usually it's more a bunch of uh, let's talk about it in the new year. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. necessarily a no. Well, you guys uh, just closed your Series A. Often you don't find a company that has closed a Series A without having first developed what we refer to as product market fit. Talk about finding product market fit and realizing that you are ready to go raise money and like double down on it. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've had, we had a lot of success with our initial like kind of tranche, I would say of DOE pilot program partners. Mm -hmm. And I think converted roughly, I mean, 90% at least into customers who are now buying product and, yeah. and are in love with it. I yeah. mean, Mon monitoring on more than 12 gigawatts of assets. As yes. I understand. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's, 
it's hard not to love the product when you help develop it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that went a long, long way. We were able to do the, ex- like the exact same thing in phase two. Oh, with referring kind of to a, your clients. Or exactly. your clients, not to, cause they're actively involved in the, in the, yes. the, the information that goes into making this product better. Yeah. Yeah. So now we have, you know, a big backing of asset owners who really have a vested interest in seeing this thing succeed and had a hand in turning it into what it is. And so, you know, we had, we had invest a couple investors reaching out actually saying, you know, we see what you're doing. Um, people are being responsive to it. Everyone we talked to seems to, to agree that it's something that's needed. Yeah. So we had been running for about a year after, uh, the DOE grant funding had run out and we were kind of on our own two feet for a while, but we just realized that, uh, in order to expand to what we wanted to see, uh, and get into a lot more doors than we were going to have to raise some funding to, yeah. to scale as it were Why? to use what, a buzzword. Why? Um, what did you need to do to scale? Yeah. So in order to scale, we needed to hire people to, you know, just be out there beating the street yeah. and talking to potential customers and getting into doors that we had yet to get into as well as building inventory, building capacity, yeah. getting into a new facility, having product instead of having to say, yeah, we can totally get that to you in a month. Yeah. When yeah. We build it. Yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize this when they reach out to us. It's like, well, you know, where, where's this thing made? It's like, we make it. Yeah. You know, we're in the mm. central coast of California manufacturing a piece of solar metrology equipment. Yeah. And I love that aspect of it. You know, one of my favorite things is, is tinkering, mm-hmm. you know, in the shop and making something new. We've got a couple exciting, you know, partnerships coming out soon that are, very tinkery, yeah. you know, they require a little bit of customization and that kind of stuff really gets Silence. me excited to show up to work every day. Yeah. So you got this influx of capital, which I'm going to talk about in a second. What was the first big decision you guys knew you had to make with how to spend that money? Yeah. Building a team obviously is the primary thing mm-hmm. because the more you get into something like this, the more your gaps in knowledge and ability become <laughs> glaring. Yeah. Uh, and you kind of see where they're dragging you down and kind of preventing your growth. So yeah, hiring a few people was key. Mm-hmm. We needed help in sales, help in manufacturing. And then we also wanted to bring in an investor who would help open some doors and actually mm. be complimentary to us. Yeah. So, so the investor that you guys brought on, um, I don't want to talk, we don't need to talk about who the investors are, but they came from the oil and gas industry. Did that surprise you? Um, no, I think it's the greatest thing to happen to the energy sector in a very long time. You know, it's the writings on the wall. Everyone who's spent a lot of time in solar knows the writing and what it says on that particular wall. But, you know, as soon as the, the really big players start to see it and start to realize like, okay, this is, this is a real thing, you know, for, I don't even, I feel like it's every January I see an article saying, hey, solar made up 50% of all new capacity in the U.S., it's like, that's great, you know, but uh, at some point, all the BPs and the shells and all these people in the world are going to have to start like turn their stony gaze over to the sunny side of solar and realize, yeah. okay, this is where, this is where the future is. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's great to see it. It's great to be a part of it. It is. I remember there was a time and and not in the very distant past, right? Like the last three years where if it was, you know, it felt like everybody was okay with, you know, uh, kind of have to accept like BP, Chevron, Exxon, they're going to shell, they're going to have their venture funds, they're going to dabble. Then out of nowhere, like, boom, Payson, 
buys Toolbase, right? Payson, I think was, I want to say a 300 million oil and gas business, mostly focused on the natural gas side of the business and also mostly focused on data, hmm. right? And they looked and they saw this company, Toolbase, Energy Toolbase, that was quickly becoming the standard, the, the central node for data flow, right? Like system sizes, parts input, like back to your PV system analysis, right? Like who's using what, in what regions? Like software platforms like Energy Toolbase know this data to the nth degree. Oh yeah, right? definitely. And it, it surprised me that there wasn't a big solar company saying, I want in on that data. And there wasn't like a big tech company. The company that came in and said, no, I want that data was an oil and gas company, right? Mm. I still feel like our industry, and this is not a broad, a broad stroke, but I do feel like our industry beyond being still very myopic about the reality that oil and gas is going to be in our industry in a big way. And we're going to leverage their infrastructure and their financial models and all their, you know, the expertise that they built. And there's this, there's this us versus them thing. I feel like that we have missed that the oil and gas industry has their shit together when it comes to data modeling, when it comes to look, nobody in the, in the solar industry is using blockchain to the depth (laughs) and understanding that the oil and Mm -hmm. gas industry is right now. Right. And I think it's going to surprise a lot of people when they, when they see how many, you know, venture companies like the ones that invested in you guys are out on the street, right? Like those of us who are in the industry on the entrepreneur side, right? Like building companies, we see it. We see it every single day now, but it's, it's increasingly important to know that you get a chance to provide an avenue for folks, but you don't get a chance to tell them their money's not good here. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right. And I think the devil's advocate response would be, or maybe they just have all the money. (laughs) (laughs) that's right (laughs) and maybe they've been you know maybe they've been selling a lot of old technology for a long time and realizing that oh in order to get their money to keep doing what it needs to do Mm. they need to start putting it into the technologically advanced side of you know energy management and battery storage and solar and all that i wonder have you reflected it all on the last 10 years and thought about what skills did you develop over the last decade that have helped you persist in entrepreneurship oh man the luxury <laughs> of, of self-reflection. Oh, <laughs> uh, who's got the time? Um, I would, I mean, it's ask me in a year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I will. I would love to, I'd love to, to sit down and really think about it. But yeah, I mean, it's such a, it's, it's such a constant go, go, go mm. that, yeah, it's, a, it's a struggle to, uh, to see the forest for the trees yeah. just yet. I would encourage you to think about what muscle has been strained, strained the most, because in the, if you go to the gym, the muscle you work the most is the one that gets bigger. Right. Right. Uh And, and over a long period of time, it's the one that causes you the most pain. We just learn that in the gym, what we acknowledge as soreness is good for us. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. And in the work world, the things that we acknowledge as soreness are like pain in the ass and we wish they would go away instead of embracing the fact that they're actually making us better leaders, right? And they're, they're yeah. molding us into someone who can handle a company that's 50 people and 100 right. people and 50 and $100 million. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I would encourage you and everyone listening to think back on 2021. Uh, whenever you're listening to this, think back on the last one month, three months, nine, 12 months. What did you endure that was worth it? <laughs> like, I'm trying to forget it. 
Yeah. And he goes out here telling us to all remember. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, look, you've been around the space for a long time. I wonder when you think about success story in our industry, who comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I've had a string of, of very, very good bosses throughout my entire career and people who have, you know, helped me learn and, and grow. And, and sometimes that was painful uh, <laughs> because I can be a little bit of a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about what I do and I, I appreciate a good leader who, who acknowledges that. But, you know, I, my, my first two bosses in the industry, uh, Alex Griffiths and, and Cody Norman are both doing great things and, and both showed me, you know, a, a ton of what I know to this day that has been instrumental in my, in my growth in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you yeah, think I, about as the CEO cultivating that kind of mentorship and helping grow leaders inside of Fraxon as it grows now that your mandate is to, is to cultivate culture and people rather than products. Yeah. I mean, fortunately we're still a very small team and, you know, (laughs) I don't get to cultivate too much culture other than what already exists there. But I think, you know, as we grow, I will definitely try to, you know, embody some of the things that, that I benefited from Mm. uh, throughout my career. um, Most of which, just being the freedom to, to, you know, take time to think about better ways to do things yeah. or side projects that could help improve. I'm trying not to be too nerdy about it, but you know, like I like mathematical processes and, yeah. you know, how we think about things and how we model things. And, and I, I owe my, my entire current position in the industry due to realizing some numbers were pretty terrible. Yeah. And I think more people should be thinking about stuff like that all the time because there's still a lot of really bad numbers out there. And what about, <laughs> without giving too much away, I mean, I already know the next one I want to tackle. Nice. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm reminded in the, in your story of, is it John Hofstetter? Hofstetter. Who, yeah. Who was your boss at the time that you came up with this idea, right? Like what a gift that you had a boss who didn't say, why the hell are you talking to me about this? We can't do anything about this. Oh, right? There might've been three other me's out there who got that response. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, from different bosses, not right. from John. Not from John. <laughs> John just liked me. <laughs> you were the squeaky wheel. Mm-hmm. Was there any point over the last 10 years that you thought you're just like, it's time to throw in the towel? I mean, we did get turned down for two DOE grants and, and looking back, you know, at the time I was like, man, like maybe, maybe this isn't, Maybe nobody needs this. Mm. But then I look back on those applications and I'm like, man, this was really just poorly written. Uh, mm. And also the industry needed to grow a little bit, you know? So during that whole growth period where the DOE changed its sights, as you well know, from trying to lower the total installed cost of solar. And now they're, they're more focused on levelized cost of energy, you know, trying to get the, every single kilowatt hour cheaper and cheaper, right. which is... The, what we're all really trying to do. It doesn't matter if you install for two or three dollars a watt, but if your cost per kilowatt hour is 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 high, then all your economics fall apart. Yeah. So yeah, throughout that entire period, while the industry was growing, it was it was kind of a struggle to see whether or not they'd actually get there. Yeah. And start focusing on operational costs and and making things cheaper over time. Any advice for fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life? <laughs> don't stop. <laughs> Persistence is key, man. I, I mean, I'd never really appreciated that advice until I look back on this and realize, man, if we, if we hadn't just kept grinding at it, you know, we, I, 
I don't even know where I'd be, yeah. you know, still working a desk job and still working for the man every night and day. I know that you having sold mod chips in your teens <laughs> are one who is, you know, usually out ahead of current technology, bleeding edge, one might say. What bleeding edge technology, solar or not solar related, maybe climate tech would fall in the category over the last 12 months got you excited? Uh, last 12 months. I'm like, I've been, I've been real pumped about graphene ultra capacitors for a long time. Mm. I'd love to get into that industry, but that has been longer than 12 months. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the last 12 months, man, I, I spent some time in fusion and there has been a lot of You were personally in fusion? Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm like, how could I make a, how could I make a cell splitting um, meiosis joke there? But <laughs> No, I mean, I thought I wanted to get into the fusion industry for a long time. And it's that always 10, maybe always 20 years away mm-hmm. technology, depending on how pessimistic you are. But um, I would say that the things that are happening in fusion now and the money that's going into it compared to 10 years ago is is very cool. And I think, you know, it's our, our ultimate technology I think, you know, renewables are very important, but we're, we're always going to need some safe and abundant base load source. And fusion is just unbelievable for that. And, uh, yeah, I think that's getting me really excited mm-hmm. <laughs> what's happening there and all the private companies that are doing work in that now. And yeah, and, and you hopefully at- someday Eater gets turned on. Eater? Eater. Yeah. What's Eater? Eater is an enormous fusion uh it's a test reactor that's being built in Catarache, France it's been uh, i want to say they started construction in 2009 it's been a very large large long pro pro long, protracted yeah project that it's very cool yeah well, i think that the the posts recently by jigger would suggest and certainly some of the announcements from his office at the DOE loan program encourage us to believe that we are entering into the era of small modular reactors and really trying to crack the nut on how to leverage fusion for our future generations. Right. I think, um, we all know that we do need to be able to literally harness the power of the sun Mm -hmm. and we are doing that at arm's length right now. And that's the, that's like really man's conquering fire right there. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of solar capacity that we can squeeze out of it and we haven't even begun launching solar arrays into space yet. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> there's still opportunity there. Yeah. Well, I think that books are a great way to get an in, get insight into how, how people think interpret or, or what maybe informs how you think. And often I'll ask this question and folks will throw out practical biographies or nonfiction. So I want to give the carte blanche that this doesn't have to be fiction or nonfiction. Uh, I just want to get a sense of kind of how you think about reading for pleasure or purpose are there any particular books that you recommend or gift the most and why? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I'll focus on the gift, but Kurt Vonnegut, Galapagos, you know, to mm. anyone who hasn't read it, absolutely needs to. It's a great long view book. It's a great book for perspective. And uh, I mean, essentially any Kurt Vonnegut will have you <laughs> not taking the world so seriously. Is there something about uh, Galapagos as someone who's never read it that, um, that stands out in particular? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the possibilities 
where we all focus on a, on a particular future that we envision for ourselves. And it turns out, I mean, maybe we're all just seals at the end of the day. Fair enough. <laughs> Callan, I know that you love to be outdoors and you live in one of the most beautiful parts of the country for that. And I, and I know that you and your co-founders surf and, and rock climb and all that. I'm curious, do you have a particular habit or consistent practice that in your life has yielded a lot of leverage or, or even just joy? Um, this is a great question. I, I like most probably have fallen off of this in the last couple of years, pandemic and all, but I, I love bicycling. I love living in an area where I can bicycle, you know, all but maybe 10 days a year. And, uh, sorry not to rub it in, <laughs> but, um, and I'm, I'm gonna get back to it this year, Yeah. but, uh, I, I just love being able to hop on a bicycle and be anywhere I need to be in under 10 minutes. Right. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I love as well. And, and I mean, I live in Durham, North Carolina and we have a one, we are a one car family and it's not uncommon that I'll be kind of going into my office, getting the day going and my wife will be like rallying the kids and they're all three getting on their bikes to go to school instead of the easy thing, which is to hop in the car. So I commend that activity, right? Choosing, it, it actually activates a different part of your brain and that locomotion, that forward progress in the day under your own power is uh, is a really important, I think it's a really important human need. Mm, yeah, definitely. And you know, it slows everything down. Yeah. If you're in the car, everything is whipping by so fast, but on a bike, you really appreciate the world in yeah. a different way. I'm sitting here in Long Beach and I went for a run this morning on the path that runs out here. And it reminds me of an interview that Tim Ferriss did with Derek Sivers. If you haven't heard it, actually our good friend Scott Muller pointed, pointed that one out to me. And Derek Sivers talks about the difference in enjoyment between being so, so hyper-competitive as many of us are, where he would get on his bike and he would bike down the path and he would exert himself to the max possibility, trying to get like the nth degree faster every time. And one day for, for some reason, and he knew exactly to the second how long it would take him to go down and back. And one day he was just like distracted by something and he just took the day off and just decided he's going to do his regular route and back. And he got to the end of the bike ride and he felt like really happy, really enjoyed the bike ride. And he looked at his watch and it took him two minutes longer. <laughs> two minutes longer. Yeah. Right. Wow. There's a lesson in there. Yeah. So... Uh, we'll, we'll let, we'll let you dear listener think more on how that, how that can apply to your life. Catlin, as we wrap up, I want to know, uh, where can folks find you? Where do you like to be found? How can folks engage with you? Is this a social media question? doesn't matter. <laughs> find me at the local bar. Yeah. I'll be <laughs> poolside, hopefully with a Mai Tai. No, I mean, <laughs> people can reach out to me on our website. I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm happy to mentor anyone. I've, I have people reach out to me fairly often about, you know, just general questions in the industry. And I love answering it. I love mm. engaging with people who are, who are new to the space and, and really just, I guess, you know, pushing the solar message as far as it can go. I love it. Well, Catlin, let's end today with, as we usually do with our bold Prediction. Catelyn, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Oh, man. Would it be too on the nose to mention graphene ultracapacitors twice in one interview? No, not at all. <laughs> but you uh, could, you could I, expand on what you meant by that. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of airtime gets spent on battery storage 
And inherently, when we talk about battery storage these days, we're talking about storing energy in a chemical reaction, which A, takes a long time, B, Mm -hmm. is kind of a mess environmentally, and C, you know, gets a lot of hate from the world of, I would say, uh, environmental weaponizers Mm -hmm. when the challenge comes with, well, how do you recycle this stuff? Right. And so I think that all those questions and more (laughs) will be answered the day that we can store energy in an electric field. And that electric field needs to be in graphene ultracapacitors without giving away my next big thing. Once we figure out how to mass produce this stuff, I think that the, that the intermittency of solar power and wind, that conversation will be a thing of the past by the time we figure this out. Wow. That is super cool. And I can't wait Mm. (laughs) for people to stop talking about intermittency as if it's some kind of shameful (laughs) plague. Yeah. (laughs) Let's go with that. <laughs> we got to do a duck-shaped curve plague kind of yeah. play. Yeah. Callum Mathias is one of three co-founders of Frexon, and he is also, as you have heard, very down-to-earth, approachable entrepreneur and founder that I hope you all get to meet someday. Catlin, thanks for taking the time to come meet me today. Thanks, Nico. <laughs> Glad we finally got to get together. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's conversation, a deep dive into a slightly edge area for probably some of you who have never thought about the implications of soiling. I hope that we did a good enough job, not just of explaining some of the technical aspects, but helping you understand how we all need to be thinking about the way that we're building our career and our life. And, you know, Catlin and his co-founders are great examples of following your passion and using the, the decades-long knowledge that you've built in whatever career you're in to fill in the knowledge gaps, to solve real problems. If you are eager to keep learning, and I know you are, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find more resources and highlights from this and, heck, every other discussion on the Suncast feed over at mysuncast.com. That's also where I'll link to Catlin's social media and his book recommendation from Kurt Vonnegut. Of course, you can get all the other links from all the other 400 plus episodes there as well. Since I know now that that gentle prodding will get you online, I'd love it if you would take the time while you're there to go ahead and share this episode with one of your friends or maybe even one of your enemies on LinkedIn because that is how we keep this thing going. It's a real treat when I get to hear from you. I know Catelyn would think the same. If you would share not just the episode, but how it resonates with you. Who do you think needs to hear this story today? Who would you encourage by sharing how Catlin and his co-founders overcame their problems and are solving those of many others. Join us again next week. We've got our Tactical Tuesday and practical long-form Thursday episodes like this one where you get insight into the leaders that are helping shape the energy transition. Thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about their offer as well as how you could partner with us and help the Suncast tribe and climate champions every week yourself at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>